Okay, we go to make sure. Yeah, we're going. going. We all got more drinks. We're good to go. <laughs> I'm on my second beer. I'm just drinking water now because I'm too warm. Valid. Hi, welcome to Spin, the Drunk Special Interest Podcast, where we get drunk and talk about our special interests and or are already drunk and are talking about our special <laughs> interests. Uh, I, I'm Charlie, my pronouns are he, him. I'm Mir, my pronouns are they, them. I'm Amias, my pronouns are he, him. Uh, and our topic of discussion for this uh, second little recording session of the night is I have been a thing that I realized the other day was that I actually like horror as a genre and it really had never occurred to me prior to um, me reading Antlers and being like oh this is a thing that's labeled specifically as horror do I like horror and then I went back and looked at like a bajillion things that I also like and I'm like hmm these all have horror elements to it but I never really considered them horror because like the stereotypical view of horror as a genre is like cheesy slasher movies with bad special effects except like that's not the only horror thing that exists you know yeah that's one subset of horror which actually I kind of like cheesy slasher movies with Honestly, bad special effects. I do too. I, Zombieland is very funny. <laughs> Slashers can be good, but they are culturally often displayed as the main horror trope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, the the thing that I was, like, having a exploding brain meme revelation about was that, like, several things that I already like and did not realize could fall into the category of horror are, like, there's some horror elements to that. Let me toss, toss me some examples, please. I think Interstellar uh, has, is not, it's not horror itself, but it has some things that could be considered, like... Horror. Existential horror. Existential horror about, like, uh, the passage of time and losing touch with uh, your loved ones because of that. I find the whole gravity and uh, the passage of time thing to be terrifying. But that's, that's just my onion. Yeah, I've heard you say this before, and, like... I find those things to be, like, macabre but comforting. That's fair. I do think you could categorize it as a type of existential horror. Oh, oh no, I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm not disagreeing with that at all. I'm just saying that, like, like I really do like existential horror, but I have a hard time thinking about it in terms of like what is the tone of this and what is the genre of this mm. because of my own personal bias mm-hmm. about it. Yeah, you don't find it horrifying. You find it like comforting. Almost cozy somehow. Fascinating. <laughs> uh, like nihilism? I, <laughs> I think this is the influence of Welcome to Night Vale on me, honestly. Okay. Like, oh, that's so valid and actually that makes like a ton of sense. A lot of my friends are like, oh my god, deep space is so scary and horrifying and I hate it because there's just nothing out there. And like, the deep ocean is so scary and horrifying because it's filled with unknown terrors, TM. And I'm like, I find the possibility of things far out in space and far down in the ocean that we don't know about, that are just existing there, doing their own thing, that, I, I don't know, I like that. Yeah, I do think all of those things are very cool, but I do think there is, like, an element of horror to, like, the unknown. And that was a good parallel to draw because this was, I think this was something that I mentioned when we were, like, talking about this in the diner the other day, um, was that, like, there's a lot of parallels between, like, 
space exploration type sci-fi and like older stories about like ocean exploration mm-hmm. having 20,000 leagues under the sea yes mm-hmm. having like the fear of the unknown be like a major plot point in that kind of stuff does mean that sci-fi stories that are about like exploring space and being scared of the things that you might find out in space are basically the same as like stories about sailors being afraid of running into the kraken it's all the same shit you know a little bit yeah and like I feel like one of the other things that I brought up when we were talking about this was I got I have gotten back into Agatha Christie recently. Nice, nice. I read like two Agatha Christie books when I was in high school, but like did not appreciate them adequately at that point in my life. Mm-hmm. And I have reread a couple now, and I think I appreciate them more now. And one of the like tropes of those that I really enjoy is a bunch of people all trapped in one place with like all different motivators, and there's like a murder or something happens, and they're all trying to like figure their shit out, but they're all stuck in the same place together. I feel like that's a thing that happens in a lot of sci-fi horror is like like Alien being stuck in the ship with Alien and there's no way out of the ship. No one is coming to help you. That is where the horror comes from is like yes. being trapped in yes. a small place with with something that you can't control, be it a monster or be it like okay. the, the fact that you don't know I what fucking, someone else is planning. I fucking love that, but also I need to ask a question to determine what it is about this that appeals to you. Do you like it more when there definitely is a monster or when they're not sure if there is or not? Honestly, both. I think it's the, like, suspense of trying to, like, figure out what it is that you're, like, what it is that's, like, hunting you down or chasing you. Like, you don't know if it's, like, an external thing. I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, that Doctor Who episode where they're on that planet and there's the thing outside that they think is got into the ship and is possessing the 10th Doctor. Do you remember that one? Yes, I'm trying to think what that episode is called. Yeah, but it's like they're in that little like broken down train ship kind of thing. Yes, and there's the thing that's like repeating what they're saying. Yeah, there's the thing that's outside. Midnight is yes. the name of the episode. Oh, and the they don't the know. Yes. Yeah, okay. they, they don't know what it is. And I think it's the like before it gets into the ship the suspense of like not knowing what it is and then even once it is in the ship the suspense of like not recognizing why it's doing what it's doing okay not understanding the motivations and that that is the thing that i think is most compelling like in mystery stories like mystery horror kind Mm -hmm. of like agatha christie shit is like you may not know who it is or what it is that is doing the crime, but the thing that is most compelling about it is the fact that you don't understand what everyone's motivations are. Okay, okay. Okay. Okay, to keep talking about this very specific, Mm -hmm. like, almost like locked room trope. Yes. There are two different ways that this can go, and I really love both of them. I can never decide which one I like more. Mm -hmm. I can never decide if I like more the idea that there is something there, that there is a monster, there is an oppressive outside other force, and they just don't know where it is or how to fight it or know anything about it. They Mm -hmm. just know that there is something. I don't know if I like that better as a trope or if I like better the idea that there is never anything and it's just 
the way that they play off each other that scares them. It's all just people freaking out in a small space together. I I do think that that can also be very interesting. The way that this happens in the couple of Agatha Christie books that I've read is that a lot of times it's not that there's one specific person who is like up to something. It's that everyone who's involved has their own motivations Mm -hmm. and they're all up to something and they're all suspicious of everyone else. That's Clue, but taking itself seriously. Yes. Uh, Murder on the Orient Express is the one that I read most recently and like I'm not... (laughs) (laughs) This book has been out since like the 50s. It's not spoilers. What it is in the end is that there there was a murder that occurred on this train that Mm -hmm. is stopped in between two countries, stuck in the snow, and no one can come to help for like a week. Oh, wow. So everyone who's on the train, including this one detective, are trying to figure out how the murder occurred and who was in on the murder and who did it. And it turns out that everyone who was on the train were all there on purpose because all of them wanted to murder the same guy. And <laughs> Holy they, shit! They all teamed up and did it. Oh and the detective God. is the only one who wasn't so in on it. So it's the third ending of Clue. Yeah, it's Holy really shit. good. <laughs> it's like genuinely, I didn't see it coming at all. And I should have because like I've read a couple of other Agatha Christie books. That's but really it was, good. It like, was really, really good. good. I did not know that ending. I've never read Murder on the Orient Express. Oh, I'm but sorry. I, no, that's totally valid. Like, <laughs> it was I, very so, fun. So the horror in that is not knowing who is up to something and also not knowing why. Yes, I wouldn't define that one so much as horror as it is like suspense. But there are other books by her that I would call horror. And then there were none. Have you read it? In the yes, that's the one I read that in high school. Is it is definitely horror. <laughs> I. I haven't read And Then There Were None, but I've seen a play adaptation of it. Yes, I. And that is not one of the ones that I have reread recently. I only remember reading it in high school. I don't actually remember how it ends, but I do remember staying up very late the night before the test trying to finish the book, and I was freaked the fuck out. <laughs> I was very scared. Yeah, I remember yes. reading that in high school, and I do remember the ending, which is that I loosely remember the ending. I think what happens is that the last woman who's left writes a note framing the guy who like ran away from the island for her murder and then she kills herself. Yeah. Because I think what happens. I I don't know if this was actually the ending of the book, but the play that I saw at the end of that, the guy who they supposedly murdered Mm -hmm. walks out and explains the whole thing. And he was never dead in the first place. Wow. He he just talked them all into doing this horrible shit. <laughs> Fucked up if true. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. You're right, though. Clue is... Clue is a good example of the a bunch of people trapped in one place and all doing dumb shit trope. But like But played funny instead of played straight. Yes. Yeah. If you play it straight, a whole bunch of horrible like a whole bunch of people with dark motives in one confined area that feel like they can't trust each other because who would trust them? Mm-hmm. Like that's that's very personally compelling to me, but also if it's done in a horrific way, it absolutely can be terrifying. Yeah. yeah. The the reason that I bring up that trope specifically, the a bunch of people trapped in one place trying to figure out like what the fuck is mm-hmm. going on, is that that trope I think originated in like suspense like mystery crime novels 
Tales, kind of, like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but that has like been carried on and used in like a lot of the suspense sci-fi stuff that I am interested in. Yeah, I can think of also three has Doctor stuff. Who episodes just off the top of my head that mm-hmm. do that. Yes. There's also like... I don't know, the best example that I am coming up with right now is just Alien, because, like, that's what that is. Alien is good shit. It I should really rewatch is. that movie because Ripley is my favorite woman ever. But yes. <laughs> Valid. It's, it's just a very good movie. It is. But, okay, the example that I watched most recently and is freshest in my mind is an episode from the first season of The X-Files called Ice. Where they go to an Antarctic research station Oh, the thing is like that as well. Oh, is it? Yeah, the it, they're all stuck in a... I don't know if it's Arctic or Antarctic research station. And, like, a alien life form starts, like, taking over their ship. Okay, but the, the thing, special effects in that, very good. I, don't, I, I haven't seen the thing. The thing is... The thing... <laughs> about... <laughs> the plot point in Ice that I like... Uh, okay, something I have noticed in re-watching The X-Files very selectively because I've just been watching all the ones that are my favorite ones yeah. is that mm-hmm. all of my favorite X-Files episodes and the ones that I consider to be like the true spirit TM of the X-Files are the ones where at the end Scully writes up her report and you're not really sure whether to believe that the alien stuff or the monster stuff or whatever happened or not mm-hmm. like the true horror is inside the minds of man kind of stuff uh-huh. like compelling because like what What happens in ICE is that they find out that there was some kind of bacteria or like virus or something introduced to the bloodstream of the researchers from the 10 million year old ice core that they drilled. Mm -hmm. It It was introduced to their blood and they went crazy and killed each other. Mm-hmm. So they're running tests on each other and they get super paranoid that, uh, so Mulder and Scully and then the two people who came up from the research project to find out what happened to their colleagues all turn on each other and that's get... that's just the star trek original series plot too the one where they the go naked down... time yeah the one where they go down to the planet and everybody's frozen and they all got that virus that no, makes you paranoid and no, act no, crazy no, no, no that just lowers their inhibitions and make them act drunk oh it's <laughs> is the way the naked time plays out that's, that's still a good episode though. that's a really good episode but like yeah so they all they all turn on each other and um they never do find out if any of them had the virus in their blood that makes mm-hmm. you act crazy and kill each other mm-hmm. they never find out if they had that in their blood or not because they all went crazy and killed each other no because well i think what they ended up doing is they ended up locking Mulder in solitary confinement until their the rescue people could get there. Oh. But like I actually I can't remember what happened. But like the the salient point of it to me is that like it's equally compelling when there's a thing that is happening and it's scary and fucked up and nobody knows what to do about it, but it's also super like <clears throat> It's equally compelling when there's not actually any threat and it's just everyone freaking out yeah. and not knowing what to do in okay. a small space. Yeah, we are. We already said this. I had another point to make about it, but I've lost it. So never mind. Yeah. Sorry for the diversion for no reason. Oh no, Let's that's valid. I <laughs> am always down to talk about the X Files. I love the X Files. <laughs> I would love to rewatch that sometime. Also, do you still have the DVDs? The parents have the DVDs. Ah, uh-huh. I will borrow them. <clears throat> okay. I have. 
I have a related point. Yes, um, let's hear it. There's, uh, related to the, uh, the people being stuck in small spaces or uh, confined areas with the forces that they do not fully understand, mm-hmm. whether that be another person's motivations or a creature that they can't communicate with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're worried that they're going to die in a lot of these cases. But uh, a director that I have not seen a lot of his work, but I do think his work is very impressive and good, mm-hmm. is Stanley Kubrick. I um, don't know anything about that guy other than that's the one that all the the film students quote and are like, oh, that's cool. People talk about Kubrick a lot um, because his cinematography and directing is full of drama and suspense. Did he do A Clockwork Orange? Yes. Okay. I have not seen A Clockwork Orange. He also did The Shining and 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh. Okay. Hmm. And mm, 2000- cinnamon topography. <laughs> 2001 A Space Odyssey is actually the one that I wanted to bring up. Uh, mm-hmm. Because The Shining is very classic horror. It yeah. does fall into that trope of people being stuck in a confined space with both a metaphysical force that they don't understand and with a very real physical threat that they do not understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because Jack Torrance, the father, uh, something happens with this metaphysical force called The Shining, mm-hmm. possesses him and he goes axe murder um, yeah. and tries to kill his family. Yeah. Which is bad. I didn't know that that was the plot of The Shining. I've never actually seen it. Yeah, that's the plot of The Shining. My main. Isn't that also a book by Stephen King? I like that it is a Stephen King book. I have a personal vendetta <laughs> my... against Stephen King. <laughs> my main issue with the Kubrick movie of The Shining is that if you wanted to pick an actor who was supposed to be a wonderful, loving, supportive dad in the first place. You could have picked someone You shouldn't than, have picked yeah. Jack Nicholson yeah. just because his face looks in... He, he doesn't look trustworthy because of the eyebrows. Okay, that's certainly an opinion to have. <laughs> like, I'm it, not saying it's a wrong opinion. It's he does like, have... I would never have way... expected to hear that phrase that way. <laughs> he does have want, questionable eyebrows. I want to clarify this, because that does sound really bad. <laughs> yeah. He, his, his eyebrows curve in such a cartoonishly angled way that it looks like he is always... Angry? Wearing makeup like an angry clown. I can't trust his face. Uh Uh-huh. right. He doesn't look like someone that I can even remotely expect him to be genuinely kind. Listen, some people have dads that look fucked up. Don't judge. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) If someone... Some people are just fucked up looking. If someone with those eyebrows was kind to me in real life, I would probably not question it immediately. (laughs) Okay. But anyway. He has angry eyebrows. The Shining. Kubrick has done a couple of horror movies, but uh-huh. 2001 A Space Odyssey is usually cited as sci-fi and not horror, and I think that should be re-examined. And also the movie should be shorter. There's there's a lot uh-huh. going on. Cinematography's really good. There's some metaphors in there I don't understand. But one of the overarching themes is thorough isolation with a possibly malevolent force that insists it is there to help you. Yeah, that sounds like horror to me. Dave, the astronaut, is stuck in a space station with the AI who runs the space station and life support. Mm -hmm. How? 
Right, that's where all those quotes come yes. from. Yes. Okay, I see. I understand. Um, Hal is an AI who runs the ship. Dave had crewmates. They were all on extended life support in cryogenesis mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for a flight to Jupiter that would take beyond their normal lifespan. Okay, so why is Dave awake then? Because I've never seen this movie. Hal woke up Dave. Okay. He shut off the light support, life support for the others, presumably. Never stated explicitly in the movie, but as you go through the movie, like initially, Hal says he's there to help Dave. He's yeah. trying to help him accomplish the mission. But as it progresses, Dave starts to trust Hal less and less and try and go back home. Mm-hmm. And Hal keeps cutting off his attempts. I can't let you do that. Yeah. We are going to finish the mission. Yeah. And I, it's either shoddy programming and the fear of an AI going rogue because of edge cases that you couldn't have planned for when you coded this thing, or it's Dave getting in his own head about it, becoming afraid of this thing that isn't explaining itself well, mm-hmm. and trying to sabotage the mission against something that is genuinely trying to help him. And it's hard, really, to tell which one it is. So, where does the black obelisk come in? That's what? a good fucking question. <laughs> I don't know anything about this movie. What? I, I don't understand anything about 2001 A Space Odyssey outside of the shots on the space station. Okay. There is a whole, like, th- this movie's four hours long. Okay. Well, I'm there's, probably never going to watch it There's then. a 30-minute segment at the start with some monkeys and an obelisk. And like the learning how to use tools. And there's a lot of different interpretations of the obelisk, and I don't understand any of it. So, most of my knowledge of 2001 is like secondhand filtered through other things that are referencing it. Mm-hmm. And Wolf 359, episode 54, The Watchtower, is heavily leaning on stuff from. 2001, to my understanding. What happens in Watchtower? I've forgotten. Um, Eiffel jumps into the star and he's taken to a yeah. room that's basically a hotel room and he's like, why mm-hmm. the fuck is this like this? And the aliens are communicating to him using really weird expressions and shit and they basically tell him that they learned to talk by studying his speech patterns and so that's why they're so fucked up. Right. So <laughs> That's actually pretty funny. Wolf 359 is also another good example of the, like, everyone's trapped in one place and they're all paranoid as fuck, though. Okay, Wolf 359... Wolf 359 is the perfect example of the crossover of sci-fi and horror that I wanted to discuss, actually. Okay, let's talk about Wolf 359. I never finished the show. Okay, well, tell me how far you got and I'll... The one that I'm thinking of is the one with the scary man outside that they don't want to let in. Oh, yeah. Uh What the fuck is that one actually? called god i'm the empty man yeah the empty man cometh Mm -hmm. okay that was all a psychological test that the people at the base were playing but it very much the episode itself was psychological horror i like i like well 359 a lot because it does that kind of it does this theme of a people and motivations running up against Mm -hmm. each other and misunderstanding the whole show is very good honestly i think i I think the show started to go off the rails and lost something when it started to move away from the original 
core characters and introduced more outside problems because that psychological interpersonal fear aspect was so strong and so mm -hmm. prevalent. Mm -hmm. Am I Alone Now is, I still think mm -hmm. that is the best episode of the whole show yeah. for that reason. I definitely wanted to bring that up because like like I said, one of the themes that I like most in sci-fi horror is isolation. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a lot of people being stuck in one space alone unable to ask for help yeah it's the uh, the thing that i think is compelling about it is being trapped in in one place where you can't ask for uh where where you can't like mm -hmm. get any kind of help mm -hmm. like in the example of like being stuck on a spaceship in the middle of space where no one can help you it like in the you know ye old uh, suspense thriller crime novels being stuck on a train in the middle of the Alps that no one can dig through the snow to come and help you. Mm -hmm. You know, like, being stuck someplace where no one can help you is, like, that is a horror trope, I'm sure. And Am I Alone Now has that whole, like, it, the whole episode is themed around that, mm -hmm. but Hilbert's monologue in particular is interesting I to me. Like, I, I pull, I have the script pulled up right here, right Hilbert, now, actually. Hilbert and Hero's monologues mm -hmm. are both really interesting to me, but Hilbert's is, it sticks the most. Yeah. Like, I like Hero's monologue because she's dealing with a different kind of alone. She is the only AI in this whole crew. She, and She's the she, only one like her. She mm -hmm. can't communicate that with any of them because there's no way to. It's such a fundamentally different experience. With Hilbert's, it's... He has not been around anyone he can trust in, like, 60 years. My thing about this monologue in particular, going back and listening to it after finding out what happens later in the series, we learn that Hilbert is conducting quite unethical uh, yeah, medical experience unethical. on Eiffel. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, that love me, uh, unethical scientist. This is not right. the first time he's done it. The crew that yes. he did it on first are all dead now. Yes. Oh, yeah, I forgot about so, that. So the previous crew who trusted him are all dead, mm -hmm. to his knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, the current crew could very well all die. He has been alone for decades. Okay. The thing that I find interesting about you saying that Hira is alone in a different way than everyone else is that because she's the only one like her, Hilbert's the only one like him. Like, yeah, Hilbert I... is... The, the other yeah. two see him as the crazy Russian guy. Like, they're both... Okay, the problem with both 359 is that it didn't appreciate that Hira and Hilbert are foils. I love Hilbert so much. He's such a good character and they fridged him so bad. Mm. Like... A tragedy. That's a good point. <laughs> What? The, but, the two of them are foils? Yeah, but Hilbert's... It, Hilbert ends that monologue with, we have conquered so many things that we're afraid okay. of. Alone let, should be afraid of us. Alone should be afraid of us. That was the part I was looking for. Let me read you. I found it. Yeah. Okay. Why does no one want to be alone? Why are we so afraid of being alone? Fear is not a bad thing. Fear is the cornerstone of evolution, blah, 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 blah. We're afraid of Big Bear, so we make Big Gun. Now Bear is afraid of us. We're afraid of society, we make Big War. Now society is afraid of us. We're afraid of hydrogen atom, we make Big Bomb. Now everybody is afraid of us. We're afraid of death and... 
well, working on that one. But alone, have had time to work on that one, have had eons, should have solved that by now. Alone, should be afraid of us. And like, that fucking kills me because you answered your own question, my dude. The way to solve the fear of being alone is to connect with people, you useless motherfucker. Oh my Holy God. shit. I guess it do be like that sometimes. Isolation huh? and queerness go hand in hand. Yeah, like... you're fucking right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other thing that I like feel like I haven't dived into yet is the intersection of like being interested in horror and being extremely queer. Yeah. Okay, it's because isolation as horror is the most fundamental horror trope. Mm-hmm. Isolation and fear of the unknown is the most fundamental horror trope. And being queer is inherently isolating. Yeah. Like, yeah. I completely different tangent here. You are correct about that. But while we're on the topic of things that are horror and things that are queer, Alien? The movie Alien? Alien horny? You think the movie Alien is horny? <laughs> yes. I haven't seen it in long enough and I'm not really okay. sure. Okay. It's I... like inherently about the violation of bodily consent in a like very not cis way. <laughs> And okay. also, there is a reason that the alien's heads, it like it, it shoots a thing out of its mouth that looks like a dick. It was designed by H.R. Geiger, who draws a lot of art that looks like, like dicks. Like dicks? It, it, yeah. Alien horny. <laughs> this is the conclusion. Wow, this is art news is to me. Oh my god, really? Yeah, I haven't seen uh, Alien in no. like five no. years. I really should rewatch it. It's I, very good. I, I want to tell you, Charlie, not only are you not the first person to think Alien is horny, there's some art out there. Oh, there's Some a lot I've art seen. Out it. There is H.R. Geiger's concept art for Alien. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> okay, not to like go completely off track here, but I feel like this is the one thing of the like design that I was disappointed in in Prometheus, the like prequel to the Alien series. Mm. Like they could have gotten so much hornier with those big alien designs, and they didn't. And that was a mistake. I didn't like anything about Prometheus except the closing monologue, which fucking shook me to my core, and I know it by heart. Yeah, that's valid. And I think about it all the time. I think about Alien, or Prometheus a lot, because I think a lot of the set design and the makeup design is really cool, but, like, that's just because that's stuff that I personally am interested in. That's why I wanted to bring up The Thing, because the one from, what is it, 82, has the coolest fucking, like, practical effects stuff ever. Like, the the, the fucking, the creature with the two faces melting together. All of that is like stuff that they actually made. It's from 82. Mm-hmm. There's no CGI in that shit. I don't it's think all... I've seen that. I it's... haven't seen the whole movie actually. I've seen most of it through just watching clips. Mm-hmm. But... So the plot of the thing is the same as that X-Files Antarctica episode, huh? Uh, Basically, yeah. They go to, well, no. It's a bunch of people who are already at, I think, an Antarctic research base and some alien organism gets in somehow and starts mutating and absorbing the other life forms in the base. Wow, fuck it's up. Big it's goo. disgusting, and I love it so much. Oh, I don't think I would like that then. I you like wouldn't. My, you I didn't... like my horror to be cerebral and not very Yeah, goopy. Yeah, you didn't <laughs> like the, the nasty, nasty monster in Stranger Things that was all the goopy stuff. No, right? no, that grossed me the fuck uh, out. I enjoyed that okay, so much. that grossed me out for, like, problematic <laughs> reasons. More, less, more so than, like gross, gross reasons. That's fair. I love slimy, goopy monsters. (laughs) I'm not gonna say you're valid, because I don't feel that you're valid. (laughs) You 
do you, I guess. <laughs> Listen, you know this about me. I Face Off was like my absolute shit in high school. Yep. I love special effects makeup. I love nasty, gory shit. It's just cool, okay? That's fair. <laughs> if you're gonna look at examples of well-done body horror in movies, uh-huh. the thing is the way to go. It really is. It's very cool. Man, I can't <laughs> wait to tell Idris later that we talked about Wolf 359 and their special fave boy, Hilbert. Oh, good. <laughs> like, <laughs> Idris was just complaining to me the other day that they're sad that there's no new Hilbert content ever. And oh, I'm like, I'm sorry, I wish I could do something for you. Well, I here can't. it is, bud. <laughs> yep. Tell Idris to listen to this podcast. Hi, Idris. Welcome to the podcast. I think Idris does listen to this show every time we put out an episode, which okay. is like... Nice. I'm glad we Which have is an not often. Even if it's just our friend. <laughs> we really it's been twenty eighteen. Twenty eighteen was the last time we posted something this for true. this. This is true. It's almost twenty twenty. Yep. Oops. That's fine. That happens sometimes. We all have sometimes lives. Sometimes you just take two years to update your podcast about drinking. God. <laughs> we are recording this a full calendar year after the last recorded episode with all three yep. of us. Yep. Yeah, I mean, that you we moved. never released. I did move, yeah. <laughs> we also just didn't record any episodes at all with the two of us until like last week, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, because I didn't remember the login information to the accounts. Okay, well. I'm foolish. Were we going to talk more about, like, queerness and isolation and monstrosity? I mean, Oh, I have so many thoughts about that. Yeah, if you want, I can loop this momentarily back around to Pacific Rim again. Oh, yes, please do. Okay. (laughs) So, the, the reason that I found... I think I already said this in the Pacific Rim episode, but I'll just touch on it again. I don't I don't give a fuck. Yes. Um, the reason that I found Newt's arc compelling, even though it was done really badly, is that a lot of the things the like a lot of the stuff subtextually and that I like worked had to work together from my own headcanons and stuff felt like it like it felt like it made sense with the narrative of Newt and Herman pining for each other. Like, Mm -hmm. Newt, I can't remember what exactly he says. He says when when Herman realizes what was going on, that Newt's being controlled on some level by the precursors, Newt says to him, finally you figured it out, as usual, a step behind, and then Herman tries to, like, get into his head and is like, you're a good man and you don't want to do this, and Newt, um, I can't remember. Um, but it's just like, and he's like crying as he's strangling Herman, and it's like Charlie Day says in the interviews, well, he misses the man that he's in love with, and they're just, he's just like... It's very gay. Yeah, and Charlie Day's like, yeah, it's a better read on the character, and like, actually, when I was acting some of those scenes, I was thinking about it. About Newt and Herman being in love. Uh-huh. And, like, it's just like, Nods enthusiastically, just uh-huh. Like, yeah, just, like, the intersection of... The, the idea of Newt and Herman as two differently disabled, neurodivergent queer people who, like, were extremely close and then just like slipped through each other's fingers and then Mm. newt getting super fucked up in the aftermath of that is just like Mm -hmm. super resonant to me like i don't know it's just like obviously queer people deserve 
better stories with happy endings, but it feels very real to me. Yeah, there's, God, there's so much shit that's just like, a lot of the stories that make, like, queer characters out to be, like, tragic villains, like, not good representation, but boy golly do I feel that. Yep. That that sure do hit me right where it, right in the, the feels. And, yeah, and it's like, and the level on which Uprising feels like it's framing Newt as having blamed Herman for the current events feels to me like... Like, I don't think that this is what happened, but it feels to me like it wants you to think that a possible interpretation is that Newt was in love with Herman and Herman, like, ran away from it. Like, I don't think that's what happened, but it feels like narratively it wants you to, like, consider that possibility. I don't think... Or, like, that's how Newt feels about it. Yeah. 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 That's rough. Oh, boy. Yeah. Where were we topic-wise? Queerness and isolation. Yeah. And, like, monstrousness. Okay, your friend who runs the podcast... That that's I, Idris. Yeah, that's Idris. Okay, tweeted something the other day that was about, like, monstrousness. Yes. And I it, it gave me some big feels. I will see if I can go find that tweet. Sorry, you can continue talking tweet. about whatever Oh, yeah, I feel want. like I didn't quite entirely, like... Yeah. <laughs> Explain the isolation angle of that, which is just that, like, like even in the first movie, it's evident that Newt has the potential to make some fucked up decisions because he doesn't stop to consider whether the way he's thinking about things is, like, really the best way to go. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like, uh-huh. he just rushes into this... The, he rushes into the initial drift with the... Uh, with the... Uh, brain segment completely impulsively. Also, I don't... It really fucks me up. It's been fucking me up for as long as since I saw the first Pacific Rim movie that he basically leaves Herman a suicide note where he's like, if I die, I want you to know that this is all your fault and you drove me to this. And it's like, he obviously... Yeah, that's... Yikes. He obviously thought that he was not going to die, and then he didn't die, so it's, like, narratively kind of, like, brushed aside, but it's, like, the fact that Newt blames Herman on some level for the mess that he is is a carrying theme. It's, like... kind of telling of how much of a mess he already was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I feel that. That... I see why this is so fucking relatable to you, honestly. I'm not sure what to make of it. I'm just kidding. No, but, like, the... The the way that you have described Newt as, like, he's compelling because, like, n- he's not necessarily being 100%, like, mind-controlled by the, 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 what is it, the, the precursors. precursors. Because, it's more his own view of himself. Yeah, he... Warped by the fact that he's alone. Warped additionally by the fact that to alleviate him being alone, he's in psychic connection 
with a hive mind that doesn't even think how human beings think. They think on a different... They Their thoughts are a different way of thinking. Yeah. Like, he, like, he went into it already pretty fucked up. Yeah. yeah. And, like, th- th- you don't make good decisions when you're having a fucked up time. And, like, that's relatable, honestly. I do feel that. This is why I'll go with you. You would do that for me? I mean, you would do that with me? It's so fucking important. Like, yeah. literally, I tweeted a tweet about this the other day that I'm still fucking thinking about. I am a genius and I deserve money for it. <laughs> like, when will someone hire me to write? Which, like, Herman making that decision is both saying, I don't want you to be alone in this action that you're taking, but it's also by the nature of the drift and the fact that the drift works on commonality and shared past and shared history in Herman saying not do you think it would be possible for us to do this together but saying it is possible and we're going to do it he's saying you've never been alone I know this would work and you've this will work with us because you've never been alone I've always been here oh, for that's, you oh that's that's big feelings <laughs> thanks for like... that yeah the uh huh you're right, and you should say I it. I love Herman Gottlieb. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> Did you have something to input to this conversation about the, the queer undertones of feeling isolated? <laughs> that it is, that is there. I, that, that is there. Uh-huh. I didn't have any, like, other examples to bring up, but, like, that very much is... That is, like, one of the... A lot of the, like, sci-fi and horror tropes that we were talking about earlier, the, like, feeling isolated, the being paranoid that you can't trust anyone around you, mm-hmm. the, um... Oh, what was the other one that we were talking about earlier? I don't remember. Those were the two main ones. But those, like, there's... the. All of those either, like, regardless of how they're played, are relatable, like, from a queer frame, but also, like, if you did want to play that, like, with a queer character, it would be, like, that That would be a good, a compelling way to do that, you know? Yeah. I can't fucking talk, I'm so I sorry. Think, <laughs> I probably have seen stories that deal more directly in queerness as it pairs to isolation and the idea of monstrousness mm-hmm. but like i haven't seen I, I i can't bring any to mind currently that deal with that on a surface level it's more the connection that i bring to the table yeah like d- 2001 a space odyssey is a good example for me because that premise of not only being trapped in a situation where you cannot go to an outside source for help Mm -hmm. which is what it's like growing up in a household where asking for support outside your family is frowned upon Uh Um, it do be like that but also being directly harmed by someone or something that insists they are trying to help yeah big religion mood Mm -hmm. honestly yes that is, I don't know if I've seen, I, if I can think of, like, a lot of fictional examples of, like, stuff that... I'm trying, because what I'm thinking about right now with the themes of, like, isolation and not being able to trust people as, like, horror is uh, Stranger Things mm. uh, in, what is it, season two? Will does not want to express that he is having issues with things. Mm-hmm. 
uh, <clears throat> I feel like the horror in that comes from not the fact that like he is back in the real world but continues experiencing the like crossing back over into the upside down like yes that is horrifying but it's in the fact that he is a child who can't do anything about it himself but also doesn't feel safe enough to ask anyone else for like help with this or even that he will be believed if he does like express it Mm -hmm. that that's another like horror trope that gets leaned on like an awful lot with like psychological stuff but like when something horrifying is happening and you feel like you can't tell like the character can't talk to any of the other characters about it because they feel like they won't be believed Mm -hmm. I feel like that is extremely relatable to me on a deeply personal level because like I I don't know if it's like a neurodivergent thing or like a mental illness thing but it's one like when you try to communicate your experience to someone else and they tell you that's not real like is that a queer thing too? It's probably also a trans thing. It that's yeah. It's just that is very deeply relatable to me, and like I would fucking protect Will Byers with my life. I love him so much, <laughs> but like th- that is actually my favorite trope ever, and he he deserves better. First of all, like <laughs> please, yes. someone give Will Byers a hug. It's one of them horror tropes that I think is good and relatable in potentially both a queer way and a neurodivergent way, you know? I kind of think Will Byers is coded as both. Uh, yes. (laughs) Extremely so. There's no way that that boy is not some kind of... Yeah. Gay. (laughs) Listen, he has a crush on Mike, I'm just saying. Yeah. Anyway... My point was, horror tropes are queer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there we go. That I was agree. the point. Now that you've returned. <laughs> this one's mo- this one's moderately off topic. Mm-hmm. Um, There's no on topic on this podcast. Yeah. The topic is just whatever the fuck I want to talk about because I'm drunk. <laughs> this, one's, this one's steering away from the queerness theme, sadly. Okay. Oh. At, at least in my opinion. That's but fine. I feel like... Getting back to that theme of being isolated with people whose motivations you can't, you don't feel like you can trust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Crimson Peak. Uh huh. Oh yes. Listen, Crimson Peak is the best fucking movie ever made. Just saying. I love Crimson. Peak. Okay, Crimson Peak and Interstellar actually are my two favorites, but <laughs> both of them do have the horror a little bit. Well, Interstellar a little bit, Crimson Peak a lot, but like the horror in Crimson Peak comes from, like, the not knowing other people's motives and being isolated, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is true. But, like, I don't know, I There's feel like... There's also the ghosts, but... The literal ghosts, which are scary monsters. The yes. literal ghosts are not as horrifying to me as the being manipulated and isolated and gaslighted part okay, of it. Okay, well, it's... Partially, I feel like the ghosts are more trustworthy in that story. They're literally like spirits sent to her by her mother to warn her of shit. So they're yeah. supposed yeah. to be so. Like I, I am, I'm down for that narratively. Is what yes, I'm trying to say. Okay. I like it. It's good. Yeah, it's very good. Textually, they're very much reversing the unknown being scary and the known being trustworthy. It's they're they're swapping it so that the thing that looks 
scary and unknown and monstrous is actually the thing that's there to help her. Which, as a queer person who loves monsters, I love that shit. Good yes. point. <laughs> and and the, the people that she came there to be with that she trusted before starting all this are the ones lying to her. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Crimson Peak, good. That's my take. Very good. <laughs> Guillermo del Toro's fucking great. Yeah. On uh, the topic of being a monster fucker, <laughs> never mind. No, please keep going. <laughs> I was just going to say, The Shape of Water also, like, low-key leans into some of these tropes. It absolutely is not a horror movie, but it, like, leans into the, like, not being able to trust the people around you kind of thing, you know? Okay. That's just this just this line of thoughts just gonna make me sad. But like, oh no, it fucks me up that like. <sighs> I guess this is the Idris fan service episode because now I just want to talk about Dr. Hofstadler. Oh like, no, I'm so sorry. <laughs> like it fucks me up hardcore that like he just wanted to help and he like. Yeah, the the theme that I was actually trying to like circle around to there was like um ultimately like what is the main character's name eliza eliza yeah eliza like the the people that in any like normal monster movie you would be able to trust like the people you work with um the the people that she is friends with are not the people that she ends up like that, like, save her in the end. The monster is the one who saves her in the end. This is true, yes. Yeah. I just... It it is not the same trope, but I have big feelings about it. The fact that, like, she, as a person, probably feels, like, uh, abandoned on the fringes of humanity and, like, valid not to trust other humans and to, like... Just go fuck a fish man, cause like, honestly, mood. Do you know what I mean? What are you doing? I'm taking an imprint of my teeth. With Why? my eraser? <laughs> Please put my eraser down, you fucking goblin. <laughs> Sorry. Jesus Christ. Do you need something to stim with? I you do, like a yes, bead lizard? really bad. A bead lizard? A bead dragon? Thanks. <laughs> Have some beads. Thanks. <laughs> anyway, the point I was trying to make. Mm-hmm. I just think it's neat narratively that, like, in any other monster movie, like, the person that saves you would be someone saving you from the monster. But in the end, it's the monster saving her from humanity. Yeah, and, mm. like, in a regular <laughs> monster movie, that guy who's, like, the main military boss guy with the handsome square jaw would be like the guy he like he kills the monster and saves the populace but actually no he's the monster and it's framed that way by giles in the beginning of the movie when he's like god i can't remember what he says he does not say what makes a monster and what makes a man because that's from the hunchback of notre dame but it's like a that similar, also <laughs> it's a similar vibe to that phrase yeah 
No, I, this is just like we've devolved into like the most base level commentary on The Shape of Water. Honestly, because everyone who's seen the movie has said this, but like, I like it. It's good. <laughs> I'm a monster fucker. Sue me. <laughs> You're right, Charlie. Literally everyone who went to see The Shape of Water did leave saying, I like it. It's good. <laughs> because that's been everyone's impression every year of Del Toro movie that's ever been made. He's good at movies. <laughs> My dad didn't like Shape of Water and I'm well, like fuck him. of course he didn't. Poor Dr. Hofstadler though like yeah he deserved much better honestly. It's extremely fucked up to me that like even did you just remember who he was? Yeah. Uh-huh. Even in a story where all of the other fringe of society people get redeemed and saved in some way this guy still dies why does he still die i'm so unhappy about that is it because he was a russian spy russian spies deserve love too let me fuck dr Hofstadter. oh my god (laughs) this is an entirely different level of monster fucker yes please i will take some of your butter cake oh my god that's a joke that like People are gonna understand, and Idris is all of them. Finger guns at the microphone. What the fuck were we talking about? I don't know. Horror, that's the only topic here. Yeah. Horror that it actually turns out you like. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the reason that I, like, started on that topic in the first place, because I was like... 50 minutes in. Yeah. (laughs) I finally remember what the fuck I had meant to talk about, was that, like, I didn't... There's so many things that are horror that I didn't realize were horror because like all of the like the mainstream cultural idea of horror is just like cheesy slasher movies and you like you look at a thing and you don't realize that it's horror because it's like you know you like horror more when it's I like suspensey shit well yeah uh, it's (laughs) suspensey a lot of horror that I think is actually really good Mm -hmm. has metatextual stuff going on like there's there's stuff under the surface there's like metaphors and a message happening yeah and there's something to discover by watching it whereas if you watch you know paranormal activity that's just a ghost yeah a lot of the the horror that you like i think we were talking about this the other day you mentioned like a lot of it has like some kind of commentary on like who is the real monster or mm-hmm. like who deserves to be redeemed or whatever or like yeah. the meaning of being human like the original horror like the founder of the genre was fucking frankenstein which like i personally haven't read the whole book but i know what it's about it's about like deciding who gets to be human and you know i remember i reblogged a quote from frankenstein once and you reblogged it to tag this is what it means this is what it's like being trans and the quote was who among us has not asked am i a monster or is this what it means to be human yes yeah and you reblogged that and you were like this is what it's like being trans literally like yes fucked up if true but true so the real the real crossover here that i wanted to talk about i guess then was not necessarily frankenstein is a queer icon is what you're saying sure but also like the 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 venn diagram of things that i like here then is not only horror and sci-fi but also horror sci-fi and like subtextual queerness yes it's about 
identifying with the monster because you two are the fringe of society and no one is sure if you're allowed to be human or not. I think this mm. mo- might be the most concise thematic episode we've ever done of this show, which means none of us are drunk enough. Yeah, anyway, I did find that tweet from your good friend Idris, which I thought was very good. The the tweet says, the sanctity of one's life as a monster is more important than restoring a non-existent normal. And that is good shit. some good shit. And this is why I personally identify with basically every villain and or monster. This in, is the Idris Appreciation episode. Good job, Idris. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to our podcast, Idris. <laughs> like, genuinely, though. Horror and queerness, yes. Mm-hmm. That's that's the topic of the podcast. It's a little it's a Venn diagram and in the center is me with my little beer. <laughs> Slurp. <laughs> that's it. That's the episode. Oh, are we done recording? Is that the episode? I mean, do you guys have more you want to talk you about? You didn't even no. bring up Paul Serene. Ah oh, fuck, you're you right. <laughs> I've, I've strayed from my brand. <laughs> the episode can't be over until you've brought up on a break. The episode can't be over over until I've talked about at least one of the gay villains that I have a crush on. Can we talk about Herbert West instead? Can we talk about Landis Holiday, please? Can we watch Reanimator tonight, y'all? It's like past nine o'clock. So? Damn, you've got me wanting to talk about Paul Serene now, though. <laughs> Fuck <Okay>. you. <laughs> Time to end the episode I before I start talking bad. about Paul Serene for 20 okay. minutes. Okay. Spin the drunk special interest podcast. Follow us if you want to hear us yell about shit that makes no sense because we're drunk. Or if you would like to be on the show, you can message Charlie. Yeah. Talk about your special interest. Your only requirement is that you're neurodivergent and you're willing to record the sound of your voice. You don't have to be drunk. We will be drunk for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can be drunk enough for multiple people. <laughs> Our next episode will feature Amias telling Charlie everything about keyboards that he never needed to know. Tune in Friday, January 17th. Our theme music was composed by Alora Driver. You can find her other music at aqua-girl.bandcamp.com. You can find Spin on Tumblr at spinpodcast.tumblr.com, on Twitter at spin underscore podcast, or at spinpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>